Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. organic farming operation east of Grand Prairie. A quick note before we get started, though, both Donovan and I had some technology issues during the recording of this episode uh, that resulted in Donovan having to phone in, so we did get the recording all done, but there will be a change in audio quality here about seven minutes into the episode, which I do apologize for, but it is what it is. So with that out of the way, Donovan, can you introduce yourself and tell me a bit about how you got into farming? That makes sense to me. I think that's all I have for questions, unless there's anything you you've thought of during the during the recording. Or yeah, thank you. Missed, you'd like to well, mention. It wasn't, it wasn't a straightforward path into farming. I, I grew up on a farm. And it's actually the farm that we're uh, we're farming on right now. Then as soon as I was done high school, I buggered off to the city and pretty much said goodbye to rural Alberta and, and any any kind of pursuit in agriculture. I took I studied engineering. I went to the U of A, I had a degree in environmental engineering. And uh, from there, after I, I graduated, I started, I got an engineering job and I still do some engineering. Um, but yeah, I, so I was living in Edmonton, lived there for about six years and moved back to Grand Prairie just to be closer to family. And then from Grand Prairie moved, you know, I think I had two or three moves and every one of them brought me a little bit closer to the farm. And pretty soon I was living back on the farm and uh, my wife and I, we bought, we bought a, a farm close to where we're at now in 2015 and as a quarter section and it was it was pretty rustic. It was a um, off-grid kind of one-room log house, no power, no running water. The only water we had, it was like, it was a pump, a physical pump that you had to pump and it was right in the center of the house and it was fine for us. And then we got some chickens and, you know, they don't drink a lot of water, so that was fine. And then we got some sheep and they also don't go through too much water. So that was all right. Uh, from then after the sheep, we got cows and hand pumping water for cows is zero fun. Um, <laughs> so when we got we got married, and uh, like both of our parents, they got together and they bought us a well pump for as a wedding present. And so that was a that was a game changer. I had installed solar in, in the in the farm, and so we had we had some power then, and so we were able to run the well pump and running water. We could just turn a tap and, or turn a valve, and water would flow out to the cows and stuff. So we were living pretty pretty luxuriously. <laughs> so we out, we ended, we outgrew that in a few years. We had cows, sheep, chickens, pigs, um, did a market garden. We started a microgreens operation. Uh, we had laying hands too. And we sold that in 2019 and then built a house on my family farm. And so currently we're kind of, we're farming here and uh, my dad, my dad's here as well. And we're going through succession right now. 
Right on. So to get us started in kind of the, the meat of the episode, your farm is one of our living lab sites. So can you tell me a little bit about the specific practices you'll be looking at under the living lab project? Definitely. So the focus of our project uh, under the living labs project is bale grazing. And so we bale graze all of our, all of our cows. And for those who don't know what billy grazing is and are not familiar with it, basically uh, once we're done haying and we haul all of our bales, instead of put it in, putting them in a bale, bale yard, uh, we just bring them from the field and set them out in a grid in, in the field that we're going to bale graze that year. Uh, every year we bale graze in a different area. Uh, basically we go look through, go around our farm and find sort of the least productive part of land, piece of land. And that's where we bale graze because that land that's kind of not living up to, to its potential after bale grazing on it for a year, like that becomes the highest performing land on the farm. So it's a really, it's an awesome way to kind of turn turn your your farm around. Um, it's also nice too. I mean, when we're recording this, so looking at the temperature and it's like minus, it was minus 41 this morning. I think it's supposed to get like the high of minus 31 today. And uh, we don't have to start a tractor. So from basically October through March, we don't need to, we, we don't need to feed. We just have a hot line, a hot wire that we move and give the cows um, but right now they're in 11 bales at a time. And so we move that every, every few days and it's, it's easy. And just cause it's kind of top of mind for me. And I know you guys are right on the edge of the green zone where you're at. Do you have issues with elk and stuff getting into your, your bale grazing or how do you manage that? Yeah. So fortunately we do not. Um, I mean, there's, we've, I've seen a couple moose out there munching on a bale, but uh, elk and deer, even though there's lots of elk and deer kind of where, where we're at, basically west of us is um, it's forest up until pretty much like up until the Pacific ocean, like we're the, we're the furthest West farm in Alberta. So um yeah, we're like we're almost right on the BC border, and then west of us is the Rocky Mountains, and then after that, Pacific Ocean. So there's tons of deer and elk and moose um, around us, but we yeah we don't allow any hunting or anything on our farm, and we don't you know shoot predators, and so I like to think that we're kind of in at an equilibrium. So there's you know as many wolves as it takes to handle the deer population, and so we don't mess with the wolves and. Um, so as a result, they kind of keep the um, deer, moose, all those ungulates, like, keep those under control. Right, that makes sense. Okay, that was the point at which both of our computers died. So now that we're back, Donovan, I know you've been bale grazing for quite a while on your operation. You've got lots of experience with it. So what are you hoping to see from the data collection that we're doing? What's the, what's the focus for you? So for the Living Lab Project, what we're measuring is uh, how bale grazing uh, builds soil. And so, I mean, just through kind of a, a qualitative analysis, like we can, it's pretty easy to see uh, through the eye test, like you can almost see where every bale was fed during the winter. The grass is just, there's so much more biomass there and it's a deep, deep green. 
Um, I have a drone every once in a while. I'll fly over the previous fields that we've bale grazed. And uh, yeah, you can basically see the outline of all the bales. So what's neat about the, with this Living Lab project is that now we can kind of, we can quantify it. And so we can measure how that bale grazing is um, enhancing and in, in improving the soil and how it's you know, like it in, increasing the, the soil carbon in the soil. Nice. And how long have you been bale grazing on that ground now? So the field that we are, uh, that we're starting the living lab product on, we haven't bale grazed in that field before. So the, the field is pretty, it, it's new to bale grazing. We have other fields that we've covered uh, the entire field already um, through bale grazing, but this one here, this is the first year that we're, we're bale grazing in there. Cool. So you're bale grazing the cows, and you mentioned earlier that you have you've raised quite a number of different kinds of animals. So can you talk a little bit about the different animals and crops that you raise on your operation? Yeah. So uh, we have a, a a beef herd, and so every everything on our farm we direct market. So we don't sell anything live it's all we sell you know for pigs we, we don't sell pigs we sell pork chops we sell steaks we don't sell calves um so everything we direct market and we have now uh, we have beef we have a big pastured pork operation pastured poultry uh market garden do eggs uh, grow microgreens and we have bison as well and you mentioned that you don't you don't shoot the wolves and you don't don't allow hunting and that sort of stuff but do you have any other predator management on your place because i know i know sheep and and poultry and that sort of stuff can be kind of predator sensitive <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we don't have sheep anymore it took us about a year to figure out that you know they don't work in our system and uh, we were not sad to see them go but for predator management we last year we lost quite a few of our laying hens to aerial predators like hawks and uh and owls and so this year we got a couple of geese and put them in there with their laying hens and have had zero issues it's, and then i mean the geese are they're pretty formidable and they're terrifying and so um you almost sometimes don't even want to go in there to gather eggs but uh no, they do. They do their job, and uh, they've warmed up to us. And so they're actually pretty cool. The geese, we like them. We, we're going to call them honk and tonk, but uh, our, our son, he's like, no, we're not. We, that's not their names. Their names are bonk and dinosaur soup. So those are the names of the geese. Ah. Yeah. And I guess you only want to have a. You can have one or two geese, and they are basically they're like guardian dogs essentially for for poultry, and so they. They'll even herd like the rooster around if the rooster's in the wrong coop. They'll go in there. They'll like they'll herd them up, kick him out of the coop, and put him in another coop. And uh, yeah, they they really take charge. Huh, that's really neat. Yeah, so you need you if you want them to sort of look after the chickens, you need one or two. From what I've read, if you have three, then the goo the geese just they're just geese and they just hang out together and they don't they don't give a hoot about the chickens anymore. Right. The flocking instinct isn't as strong. Yeah. Um, so we have the geese. We put them in with the laying hens this year. And another thing uh, for kind of predator management that we've done in the past is using uh, like an electric chicken. 
And so if we every once in a while there'll be you know a coyote or a fox or something that'll go come in and and uh, have a snack. And so what we do is we'll take one of those chickens that they've left and basically we wrap it up in an electric wire and hook it to the electric fence. And so when they come back to uh, to have another another uh, bite of chicken, they get a, a bite of this electric chicken, and uh, that's usually that'll be it for a few years. It's like it's it's like they te- teach their offspring that like yeah you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to eat chicken. It's 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 not very good. Those ones bite back. Yeah, so that's worked really good for us. Neat. It, it's one of those of I once I think about it, it's it makes a lot of sense, but it's not exactly an obvious predator management tool. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, and so we call it the Franken chicken. And then where we we set it up, like we always make sure it's in a in a lower spot, or we'll even um, kind of like water the ground around it, so they get like a really so, so that when the the predator comes up to take a bite, like it's a really grounded area, and so they get a, a really good shock. Yeah, it makes sense. And with these pastured livestock, like you pasture and graze everything on your operation. So what sort of a grazing system do you use? Do they each kind of have their own independent rotation or do you lead or follow them a bit or do you mob graze them all together? Um, so we don't have a kind of a set rotation for what goes through a field first. Um, we have some fields that it just doesn't make sense to, because pigs need mm-hmm. quite a bit of infrastructure out there for them. So like we have some fields closest to the house that uh, then we'll do the pastured mm. poultry, pastured pigs in. Um, and then we have kind of the, the ones further away and that's what we'll, we'll do rotational grazing in the cows and bison. But for the poultry, so we have these, they're most, most listeners are familiar with the, kind of the chicken tractors, but ours are quite a bit larger. They're 48 by 96. And then pull them with the skid steer or the, or the tractor. Mm-hmm. And so each one of those pens will hold about 500 birds and uh same kind of same same kind of thing i mean we mm-hmm. remove them day to day onto onto fresh grass but they're just just kind of at a larger scale with pigs pigs are smart we just we use polywire just electric fencing the same stuff we use as our cows right um, we use with our pigs and then we just set their set the fence about snout height and usually we'll have two Two wires, but we've gotten away mm. with one in the past. And so uh, we we train them to electric fence. So when we wean wean the piglets, they go in to a pen made of hog panels. And right. so they start out in the hog panels, and then we'll open up the hog panels a little bit and put an electric wire there. And uh, so as they as they kind of learn to respect that electric wire, then we open up the hog panels more and more and more, and then eventually. You just take the way off together and just change the electric fence and yeah, really respect it when we when we move them because we're always we're always moving them throughout the fields they're on probably close to a 15-year rotation so it'll be 15 years before they would come back to the same area of the farm oh wow yeah and uh yeah so we're moving them quite a bit and then even when we roll up the wire like they're really cautious even with no wire there just to step in between the posts so thing we use electric fences for everything for poultry, cows, and bison. And do the do the pigs require any kind of shelter or that sort of stuff through the year? When you're well, when you're out on pasture especially, I guess. Yeah. So they have little insulated buildings that they can that they're in in the winter. 
And so, uh, kind of each, we, we Pharaoh will have anywhere from 60, well, like anywhere from like 50 to 80 sows. And, uh, so each one of those sows, mm-hmm. like when they're going to Pharaoh, they get a little insulated, little insulated quantity. They're eight by eight. And so that goes on top of the insulated, uh, like an insulated mat. The shelter goes on top of that. And then it's filled with straw. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we Pharaoh year round and, old it doesn't really phase them i like to say that pigs are like land whales i mean they're covered (laughs) surrounded in like that big layer of fat so yeah and i mean you go out there today if i look at the window you can just see steam rolling out from these from these huts like they're not cold one bit that's cool yeah so that's for the sows and then um for growers finishers then we have larger buildings for them all portable, like we don't have we don't have a, a barn or anything for them because everything gets moved anywhere from a few weeks to in the winter. It's a little less often that we move them, but uh, everything has to be portable. So yeah, the, the, the growers and that they have a, a bit bigger of a building and fill the straw and burrow in there and happy. <laughs> right on. And I know I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about the pigs because I'm very curious. I know they can be a little bit destructive, like they're a little bit. We had chickens growing up, and if you left the chickens anywhere too long, they would absolutely destroy whatever they were on. It would take a while for it to come back. And I know pigs can be a little bit that way too. So how long, how long do you leave them in one area before you move them on? Yeah, it totally depends on the time of year. So, uh, mm. so we, our pigs are kind of uh, like edible rototillers. So we're using them to. We're using them to like kind of rejuvenate our pastures. And so the pigs will go through, they'll root everything up. Like we'll put them onto a piece of pasture and it'll just be beautiful, like nice alfalfa, Timothy. And then in a few weeks, it'll basically look like a moonscape. They'll eat everything, root it all up, and then we'll move them onto uh, another area. And then at the, and then in the, at the end of the year, um, we just basically we work up where they were. And uh, then we'll seed that down to uh, a cover and mm-hmm. underneath the cover of perennial forage. Interesting. Take advantage of the natural tillage. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess related, bison are another one. I, I hear lots of stories about how much infrastructure it takes to manage bison. Is there anything different in the way you manage the bison versus the cows? Yeah, definitely. Um, Bison are easy to they're easy to keep when when they're happy, um, but <laughs> with the cow you can't manage them as intensively as you can with the cows. So the cows we're doing daily moves, um, and we're also bale grazing, and uh, in the winter for the cows and and the bison it's sort of more like monthly moves. We move them into a different field, um, and uh, they'll stay in there for a bit longer just because you can't you can't really push them like you can cows. Oh, right. A little bit. They need that. They need. They need that space. They're. They're pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we try and we only work them once a year. Um, but it's pretty. It's a pretty high stress operation. Working bison, they get pretty freaked out. So we try not to do that unless we have to. Makes sense. And on this note of pasture and all that, I know you guys grass finish some or all of your animals and I know it's a bit of a discussion with some people being big fans and others not so much especially when it comes to putting on like the last little bit of weight before 
uh, those animals go to go to market or to the butcher. So how do you manage the the grass finished part of your operation? What methods do you use to put that weight on those animals? Yeah, so um, <laughs> a friend of mine, he's a butcher, and he said like the best steak you'll ever have is a grass is grass finished. But then the worst steak you'll ever have is grass finished, and that's like a mistake that a lot of people make is you know, it's like not not finishing properly and thinking like you can get right. you can get a you know a grass finished um, animal with eighteen months like you like you would if you're um, like graining it. But it takes us like twenty probably twenty four to twenty eight months to finish an animal. And uh, so the big thing is genetics. So we run all of Galloways. And so they're kind okay. of a smaller, smaller stature. Um, they're really thick. Like they can really, they do great on pasture and genetics are, are awesome. So that's another reason too, why it's hard to grass finish is now kind of your genetics are sort of geared towards um, kind of like grain, grain finishing market, grain finished market. And it's just, yeah, it breeds just can't, can't put on the mm -hmm. fat they need to. On, on pasture right yeah so yeah genetics we have the, the galloways they're awesome and then that's one of the one of the reasons that that we run them is just because they do so well on on grass they're also super docile too so we can like walk through our herd with our kids it's, and basically like reach out and and like touch mm. pretty much any any animal anytime the the vet comes by when we're preg checking or something he always says that we have the the calmest herd he works with so but yeah, so like we just butchered an old cow and we always save the like the ribeyes and the tenderloins. Like honestly, it like looked like Wagyu beef. Like it was so marbled, it was it was just incredible. And uh yeah, I mean wow. just having those grass fed genetics. And then we're also really selective to everybody likes hamburger. So if there's an animal that's just not performing as well as as well as we'd like them to, then they're they're kinda out of the system. Yeah. There's nothing as important to a cattle operation as a good culling program, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this year we went down to a six-week, uh, like we exposed the cows for six weeks mm. rather than two two months. And so now we're, we're trying to tighten that up too. So cull, cull a little bit harder. Right on. And is there anything that's been surprising to you as you've been managing these different animals on grass and, and starting to finish your animals on grass and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, maybe not so much with the cows, but with the chickens and pigs, one thing, one thing I've noticed is um, like the prevalence of natural instincts. So you can, I mean, the broilers that we're raising now, um, I'm sure the last thing on the, the, the scientist's mind is they're developing these Goliath chickens is how well they're going to perform on pasture. But even like we we raise the same kind of the same Cornish giants as everybody else does, and so what's neat about them is that even though they're designed for big chicken, um, they still have those natural instincts like to go kind of like run around and grass and um, find bugs and dust and and those kind of things. So that's pretty neat to see that's just how deeply ingrained those natural instincts are. And same with pigs too. We've had uh, in the past, but we've got breeding stock or a new boar from kind of more of a commercial operation where that boar was raised inside and it, we let it outside and it's never had to lift its feet before. And if there's like a stick in the field, 
that boy it would trip over that and uh just not knowing how to to cut it outside and it's pretty amazing how just in a matter like maybe in a couple weeks then that bore like you can't even tell really that it was from from a commercial operation like it's you know it's rooting and uh um forming it's behaving like like a pig would it's able to express its natural behaviors so that's something that's pretty neat that you know even though a lot of these animals they don't have the access or the, the ability to express their natural instincts that they're still there if you give them a chance yeah that's really interesting the other one i wanted to talk about a little bit was in addition to all the livestock you raise you also have a bit of a market garden side to your operation and i know when i moved up here from east of olds i really was not expecting to find much in the way of market gardens up here <laughs> So can you talk a little bit about getting set up for vegetables where you're at? Sure. So it's my wife. She's the, uh, she's the expert. She, she knows it all when it comes to the, to the market gardening side of things. Um, so we've started, so this will be I think maybe the fourth garden. We started from scratch in the last, well, since 2015. Um, so I mean, it's been a bumpy ride. And we've learned a lot. So it takes a couple of years to get really you know, get that soil in good shape to grow vegetables. Mm. You know, the first year, like if you were just to work up a bit of that field, it takes a lot of the nutrients get tied. It gets tied up in sort of the decomposition of um, like that thatch and, and the kind of the organic matter. Right. And so that first year is kind of a struggle for the garden. And then, I mean, we're organic too, so we don't, we don't, do any any spraying and fertilizing and that so we have to manage weeds mm. and do a lot of a lot of weeding but then also we're kind of smart about how we how we manage our garden too so we'd like we do any tilling in the garden so like we're not disturbing that seed bed and then is we have silage tarps and they're, they're like 30 30 by 100 mm. 40 by 100 something like that and if we're not if the garden's not growing something, then we have the silage tarps there, and then all the weeds will kind of germinate underneath that tarp, and then it won't, they won't have access to light, and then they kind of die off. So that's really helped us um, with weed management, and then fertility. So we do a lot of composting. So uh, from our laying hens, wherever we went to them, um, we'll pile that up and compost mm -hmm. that for a few years. See the supply of nutrients in the soil for the. We also for the garden. Uh, we've done some soil testing and we've sent it off to uh, Kinsey Labs in the States. And they do, um, so they run, they use the kind of the Albrecht soil balancing method. I don't know if you're familiar with William Albrecht, but he's a, he's a soil, soil scientist from the early 1900s. And um, what he was finding is that kind of the highest production fields in that, they all had these similar ratios of um, like nutrients big ones carbon or not carbon but calcium and magnesium in that and so we sent us some our garden soil we sent that down to get tested and so we followed these soil amendments and uh, it, was, it felt kind of bizarre spreading copper and boron and sulfur and just salt and stuff in the garden and we didn't notice anything the, the following year but after two years, it's pretty amazing how how that helps our 
the carrots were perfect. The garlic was huge and it was perfect. And uh, even though it would have been kind of a drought the last couple of years, like this, we have two different gardens. One we did the amendments on, one we did it. Pretty stark how, how uh, the difference between the two. That's cool. Yeah. Before we start a garden too, we always we put the pigs in there to like really work up the area. And biggest struggle is with quack grass. And so if you try, you've tried pulling quack grass, it's kind of a exercise in futility. But then you watch these pigs and then they get their snout under a quack grass rhizome and they'll pull that up and they'll just like pull up meters of it and then eat it. And so that's that's pretty awesome. We put the pigs in there for, for a while to you know, eat all that quack grass before we uh, put the guard in there. And that helps keep, keep the weed pressure down too. Right on. And everybody's got a little bit different expectation for what a successful farming operation looks like so what are kind of the biggest metrics for success uh to you on your operation oh that's a good question so when we started out we took a course called holistic management and so in holistic management like they one of the things that they talk about is a three-legged stool Mm -hmm. and that three-legged stool has the three legs are um sort of your you have your biology your economics and your people and so success to us would be having all three of those legs firing on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. The people on the farm, we're happy, we're loving what we're doing. You know, the farm's profitable and uh, we can and we can see that our land, the quality of our, our forage is increasing every year. So that, bio, that biology piece. So that would be, that'd be success to us is kind of having those three things really working for us that makes sense to me i think that's all i have for questions unless there's anything you you've thought of during the during the recording or anything that we've missed that you'd like to mention well i don't know when this is going to be aired but uh, i just wanted to put a plug for that but the for the peace region forage forage association in dawson like dawson creek fort st john but they're putting on that holistic management course and uh, so it's six days, I think it's the end of January, February, and taking holistic management, like we, would, we wouldn't be even close to where we are now if it wasn't for that course. And it really teaches you how to make, make decisions that kind of align with your values and just to farm, farm smart. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's through the Living Lab, actually. So <clears throat> I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Also, you're the second producer I've talked to this month that's talked about holistic management. So that's awesome. Well, honestly, like looking around and and, and our, our peers and stuff, back to that success question, and almost all of the, the ranchers and farmers that I see that are having, you know, I feel like are having that success have all, like that's a common denominator is that they've gone through that holistic management. And it doesn't like tell, it doesn't teach you how to farm. But what it teaches you is how to make decisions to farm in a, in a way that is, is going to, well, have that, that success. Like the, the, the three-legged stool that I talked about. That's an excellent course to take. Fantastic. Yeah. Another cool program is Young Agrarians. So we're um, a host farm for, for that. So every year we have anywhere from like one to, I think the most we've had is four apprentices that will spend anywhere from four to eight months and they kind of live with us and, and they live our day-to-day and they learn learn how to farm so it's kind of a, it's a formal apprenticeship program 
And it's really awesome because it sort of is helping the, the next wave of farmers kind of learn the skills that they need in order to start their own operation. So most of the people that are, that are entering that program, a lot of them don't come from an agricultural background. So by you know, having that opportunity just to live in a farm and see what's all involved in that, and it's really beneficial for them to kind of experience a way of life rather than you know, just studying agriculture. Definitely. It's such a hands-on industry. It's nice to get some hands-on experience. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of more geared towards uh, kind of direct marketing or ecological agriculture. So people that are interested in that, it's a way for them to learn. Fantastic. All right. So if people are interested in learning more about your operation or ordering food from you, if they're local or any of that sort of stuff, where can they go to check that out? Sure. So they can... Come out to the farm. We do farm tours all summer. I think we ran eight farm tours last summer. There's not a lot to see right now. It's basically just black and white. But they can find us online. We're fairly active on social media. (laughs) So on Facebook and Instagram, they can find that we're at The Homestead 2015. Our website is www.thehomesteadfarm.ca. And uh, you can place orders on there. Nice. We do delivery too, so that's an option. Um. Yeah, we're at the Grand Prairie Farmer's Market. So every Friday and Saturday, you can come by and say hello. And then you can find our products in places like Homesteader Health, and then uh, Mad Hatter's, Jeffrey's, the Frontier Eatery, so a few restaurants in, in Grand Prairie. Right on. Thank you very kindly for bearing through all the technical difficulties. <laughs> I think that's all the questions I have. Yeah, it, it was fitting. I mean, like how long we've been trying to get together and then like finally it works out and then the like, computers, both of our computers crash. So, but hopefully, hopefully the juice is worth the squeeze. This segment has been brought to you by the Peace Region Living Lab. Funding for this project in part has been provided by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada through the Agricultural Climate Solutions Living Labs program. Stay tuned and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website at peacelivinglabs.ca for our latest updates.